Welcome to episode 240 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's episode 240, and I believe that God has providentially orchestrated this particular episode. Do you oh, see where I'm going with this? I do. I do. They don't yet, but they will. <laughs> so there's like will. a small inside joke for 30 seconds yes. between you and I yeah. before we let everybody in on the fact that we're starting a new series yeah. on episode 240, and it's going to be about providence. And our plan is to really get after it, like to yes. get the center cut of providence to speak about predestination, God's superintending will, and not in a cursory way. So how many episodes will this go for? Only God knows. Because but he has determined it ahead of time. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Best open ever. So before yes. we actually kick off the whole series, which is going to be fantastic, let's get into that regular little back and forth on affirmations and denials. And as is our usual custom, I'm going to start with you and say... You tell me whether you want to deny or you want to affirm first. Let's start with some affirmations today. You're so positive. Yeah. So <laughs> I often get questions from people um, because, you know, we do the show and because of the Society of Reform Podcasters, I get questions from people that's basically like, I want to start podcasting. I don't have a huge budget, but I also don't want to buy like cheap, crappy equipment. What should I get? And um, I've, I've been on a quest to find like the perfect podcast kit recommendation. And we're not getting any kickback for this. We're not being, we're not sponsored by Zoom, uh, and not Zoom the video company, Zoom the microphone company, which is weird that there's two different companies called Zoom. But um, Zoom is a microphone company. Uh, Jesse and I have been using Zoom microphones, I think, probably since like the the mid '90s or earlier episodes. So we've been using Zoom microphones, various kinds um, of different microphones for a long time now. But I've kind of come to the conclusion of the perfect podcasting kit. So what I'm affirming for anyone who wants to start a, a podcast uh, is a set of equipment from Zoom. It'll run you about $300. So you can do it cheaper if you want. There's there's less expensive ways to start a podcast. But if you're trying to get started or if you're ready to kind of stabilize your gear, uh, they make a little device called a pod track and they have a four, a four channel and an eight channel. I use the four channel, but the devices are basically the same. It's just more microphone channels. Uh, it's called a pod track P4 or a P8. And then they sell a podcasting microphone kit called a ZDM-1 is the microphone. And then it comes in a kit with like studio headphones that I'm wearing and a, an XLR cable to connect your microphone. And the whole thing will run you something like $320, $330. And um, you, the microphone is good quality. It's not the best, right? It's not the nice, the nice fancy microphone you see Camden Busey using on Reform Forum or every other podcaster in the world. But uh, it's got good tone. It's good studio quality. It, you have to be up on the mic, which is uh, a learned skill, but it's helpful if you're recording with more than one person in a room. You don't pick up a lot of extra back uh, back chat from other microphones. And even if you do, if you're using the P4 and you have all of your microphones plugged in the same device, the device will actually eliminate that crosstalk. Uh, it's called a, a, a mix minus, which is very hard to do if you're not an audio engineer, but the P4 right. does it for you. And the best part about it is the P4 actually and I think the P8 too, but the P4 has a four, the fourth channel. You can either plug a cell phone into it or you can record the audio coming from Skype or Zoom and it'll only record the incoming audio. So I could plug my cell phone in, call a guest. Let's say I was going to call 
Todd Pruitt and I was calling him on his cell phone because he doesn't have Zoom for some reason, um, I could actually plug my phone in and then call Todd on my cell phone. And then instead of, you know, talking on my cell phone and trying to record it, the audio from my microphone goes into the cell phone through the P4 and the audio from the cell phone goes into the P4. And then you have two separate channels, which is a struggle. Little known fact about our, our show, the very first interview we ever booked was with Michael Horton and everyone's like wait a second I don't remember hearing I don't remember hearing an episode with Michael Horton that's right, that's we did right. It because we couldn't figure out the audio and then it never worked to reschedule right. it so uh, one of the great regrets of my life is that I blew that interview with Michael Horton uh, which was supposed to be about one of one of his best books, which was Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. So, this is a good um, midline entry uh, level microphone kit. Uh, honestly, I think for the kind of casual podcaster who's not doing this as a career, uh, this is the way to go. I think anything much higher is probably a little bit overkill, and anything much lower you can certainly make do with. But you'll start to see audio quality loss, and you'll start to see limitations on what you can accomplish. So, this is now my official podcasting kit recommendation. Uh, and it's just, a, like I said, I'm not sponsored. We're not sponsored by zoom. They're not giving us any kickback or anything like that. They didn't give us equipment for free. This is just a good recommendation that I'd like to make for this, uh, this equipment. This is one kit to rule them all. Yes. Essentially uh, and, and in, in the podcast, sphere, bind them, bind them. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because we kind of return to this affirmation, both specifically and generally from time to time, we haven't done so in a while. I would also tack on, this is just another good affirmation to try out podcasting. If there's a topic of interest that you have, there's always an audience out there that I think would like to hear good dialogue about it or great interviews, or maybe even your personal musings about it. And Tony gave you like a lot of like amazing. So here's what's funny about this. Somebody who just heard you rattle off like all these names, all these initialisms and acronyms and numbers and things like audio in and all that stuff. They might be like, I don't even know why this matters to me. The thing about this kit is it takes something that would be intensely complicated and actually makes it really easy. So I think sometimes people really get discouraged from jumping in and getting some interest in recording stuff because they think, I don't know anything about audio engineering and that's okay to feel that way. That's why these kits are so great. It's basically podcasting life hack in a box for you. And the little P4 that you're talking about, which is this like little device, which you plug everything into and it does the recording. It's like if you have a church that has like a giant sound port and and you've ever walked by it and saw all those lights and levers and switches and thought, this is why I do not want to have to do anything with recording. It looks way too crazy. This little device takes care of all of that. Like, again, can I chalk this under what a time to be alive? Because to have access to this kind of stuff at that price point is just so unprecedented. Unusual, unprecedented in the history of the world. So start a podcast, try it out. And this is a great way to do it effectively and affordably. And easily. It's easily. What, what, uh, you know, when we first started podcasting, it's funny because I I tried (laughs) to start podcasting for a long time and I just, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm I'm a techie guy. Like I'm a, I'm a tech oriented guy. I kind of usually know what's going on in technology. I could not figure it out for the longest time. And then um, once I got started, all of a sudden it was like, okay, wait a second. Now, like, we're going to try to do, you know, what we've kind of commented, like, it's easier for Jesse and I to record when we're not in the same room. That's because we, it's hard for us to get the mix right without hearing each other. Right. So it takes like six hours to edit like a like a, an hour long podcast. So this this makes it simple. It's relatively affordable. Um, and you, you could buy the P4 and use a less expensive mic. Uh, up until this week, I was using like a $20 mic that I got on like Amazon. 
Amazon Prime Day for for like next to nothing. Um, so you can definitely do it for less expensive. But if you have the funds and you're wanting to start a show and you just want to get everything in one shot, head over to the Zoom uh, microphone website. Uh, I don't know the website. If you just type zoom.com, you're going to get Zoom video conferencing. So you might have to look up like Zoom microphone in, uh, in the Google. But uh, head over there, pick it up. It's super simple, super easy to use. It's super reliable. Um, it's just a good. It's a good product. I mean, we like to recommend good products, even if we're not right. getting anything specifically out of it. So check it out if you are interested. And if you'd like to start a podcast and you need some help, please feel free to reach out to me uh, through the website or email me at tony at reformbrother.com, wherever you can can get a hold of me, Facebook, etc. I'd love to give you pointers, help you get started. I think podcasting is a great way for Christians to have these kind of conversations in ways that we haven't really been doing so in, in you know, kind of evangelicalishness uh, for quite a long time. So just do it, loved ones. We're yes. totally united on this. Like half of this podcast is pro sprinkling babies, but a hundred percent of this podcast is pro other podcasts. Yes. Exactly. So go and do that thing. If that says anything about our unity, bonded together in the spirit it's we're 100 <laughs> pro podcast for All sure right. well with that sparkling transition point what are <laughs> you affirming today <laughs> i'm going media and i'm back to affirming a book if you want i think i've said this before if you want to feel super depressed about your ability to consume information consider that there are so many lovely and wonderful books to read in this world that god has given us and if you're actually to map out how many of those books you could actually read in your lifetime it gets so depressing. And so I'm on this kick of picking up really lovely books that are dense, but compact, that are slender volumes, but offer so much good material. And I just came across another one that's from the Banner of Truth. It's called Prayer, A Biblical Perspective by Eric J. Alexander. And again, it is relatively short, but man, is this thing a gold mine? And I'm just overwhelmed with conviction about how significant prayer is in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ, in the abundant life, and in a life that's wholly committed to God, one that's transformed and that lives according to the call that God has given us. And so this book is just another kind of wonderful complement to, I would say, a devotional life that's trying to understand how to step into the stream of presence and communion and connection with God. That's all I want to say because I don't want to spoil it. Like there's so many good things in this book. I'll just say this one thing. He has this part of this chapter where he talks about, uh, he's a military motif and he's saying, you need to know in a battle where the front line is. And he just says out straight, prayer is the front line of all work of God. That's just where it is. And if you're anywhere else, you're actually not on the front line and don't deceive yourself. So that by itself is worth the price of this book, is trying to understand what he's unpacking there. So Prayer, A Biblical Perspective by Eric J. Alexander is short, worth the read, and I think you'll find it very transformative for your own prayer life. Nice, nice. You always make such good like devotional book recommendations. I feel like my books are always like, here's a really technical, difficult treatise <laughs> on the inseparable <laughs> operations of the Trinity at yeah, or but, something like that. But you that. know what? There's, there's nothing wrong with that because like that, this is the thing is like, if you're looking for some really strong theology and you want to pair that up with, well, how can I turn this into some practice yeah. right now, right today? We need both of those things. And yeah. this is just one of those things. I'm, here's the thing. I'm just increasingly convicted that prayer is where everything happens. That, you know, that, that colloquial saying, like when we work, we work, when we pray, God works. Yeah. And I, we underemphasize this. Here's the way that I would describe it right now as I'm processing through his book, having been on the other side of it now, and really have taken some time to metabolize what he's saying is 
the easiest example for me is I try to train every year for some type of race and generally that foot race. And generally that is of like the long distance nature. And in that scheduling, you're probably, I'm maybe running three or four days a week. And so most of those runs are like little runs. You go out, you do your work, you have some training in mind, but at least one time a week is the long run. That's the one that gets you ready, that makes sure you're in gear, that prepares you for the race that's ahead. And in thinking about that and in processing what Eric J. Alexander says here, I've been thinking about Christians this way. When it comes to our prayer life, with our devotional commitment to prayer, when our discipline in prayer, do we have long runs when it comes to prayer? Now, I'm not saying that like we should all like once a week set a timer for 60 minutes and pray, but I'm also saying, would that really hurt us if we were going to labor and do the real work of prayer like a discipline? It's one thing, of course, to pray and thanks and gratitude for your food, to pray with your family regularly, to have popcorn prayer, to have that kind of communication ongoing with God throughout the week is great. But the question I was asking myself at the end of this book is, when do I actually labor in prayer with God? Because it seems to me that just like the long run prepares your body for that gruesome, that long work that's ahead in the race, so also does the kind of laboring prayer allow the kind of space and time for you not only to get into a communication, a conversation, if you will, with God, a doxology, but also to provide the time and the space for God to work on me. Yeah. And that's what I feel that I'm missing a lot. And so I'm going back to the source here and realizing that prayer is that great work that God does in me. And I need to allow him the space and the time to do that and not just kind of shoehorn it in to a day where there's lots of other activity, but to make it a part of a discipline where I'm investing something into it. And, and he does go into great length to say, whoever told you that prayer is not work. Whoever said that this isn't labor, it's the yeah. hardest labor. Yeah. But God always provides the energy and the strength to do that which he commands. And he commands us to pray. So it's, it's, and to me, it seems like that command is more than just, Lord, thank you for this food. Right. Or, you know, it's something about having a meaningful engagement with him yeah. where you're actually working in your mind to forsake distraction, to focus on his holiness and to let him do some kind of work in that moment. And he captures that well. So yeah, I commend this book without reservation to all of God's people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good recommendation. All right. So let's hit up some denials. What you got? I'm going to flip it up a little bit. I'm going to have you go first with your denial. Cause oh, mine man, might take a me? little bit of time. <laughs> I knew. <laughs> Whenever this happens, now, hopefully not too much time. Cause I want to get into our okay. topic, but all right. So that's fair. I'm going to keep my denial then uh, a super brief, but again, I think, as our listeners know, if they ever hear your eyes say, this is going to be super brief, that's code for the opposite. But yeah. this time, I'm actually going to try to follow what I said. Uh, this is a denial that's actually wrapped up in an affirmation. I'm sneaky like that now. We've been oh, doing man. this a while. Yeah, we got to so, switch it up once in a while. Yes, you got to change it up. Listen, we're going to keep you on your toes. Uh, so I'm going to start the denial by saying this. Loved ones, if your pastor, if your elders have served the Lord well, if your pastor has preached a particularly helpful sermon, one that has strong fidelity to the scriptures, if you've been encouraged by their good work, if you've seen them persevere in service of the Lord to the body of the saints, would you just tell them this week, please? Yes. Would you text them? Would you send them an email? Would you give them a phone call and just do that? The denial comes in in this way. This is the backdoor denial is when we affirm to our pastors that they're doing something well, when we affirm to them, particularly that, like the way that they preach, the way they teach us is exactly what we feel the scriptures, how they need to be proclaimed, that they're giving, the, they're delivering the gospel to us in each way. When we affirm these things, we at the same time deny everything else that's not present there. In other words, we are telling them, 
you are doing well, that I'm being blessed by what you're doing. And therefore you don't need to use other tactics. Yeah. You don't need to dress up things. We don't need to try to make the scripture something they're not. We don't need to advertise or over embellish or add trappings or embellishments to it. So I'm saying by way of denial, get rid of all that nonsense by telling your pastors what they do well so that they know that they're reaching, that they're resonating, that God is doing a work because you know that they're praying throughout the week. You yeah. have a good pastor. They are praying, laboring throughout the week that God would empower them with the message that their people need to hear. And I think sometimes when our pastors are not receiving the feedback that they ought to about how well they're doing, they will resort to other tactics because yeah. they think they have to go outside the bounds. So the affirmation is tell them they're doing well so that in doing so you are denying against alternative approaches that make the scriptures too showy when really God always shows up and shows out yeah. when the gospel is preached. That's what we want our pastors to do. So yeah. That's the denial wrapped that's, in that's affirmation. That's it. That's the denial. <laughs> that's it. That's it. All right. So I'm going right to you. All right. I'm going right to you. What do you all got? Right. So buckle up, everyone. So <laughs> there's this new book that I saw all of a sudden everyone was talking about. Have you heard of this book? It's called Cruz Moore's Inferience by Sam Renahan. I've heard of it. I know next to nothing about it. All right. So don't buy it. It's terrible. So... <laughs> Okay. So he, here's the basic thesis of the book. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about about his argument and thesis. And and I think I think he would uh, would agree with me that this is supposed to be a very superficial, easy to understand, sim simple argument of a book. It's not intended to be in depth. He's very clear about that. The basic argument is that uh, prior to the resurrection of Christ, Sheol was where everybody's soul went. Everybody's soul went to Sheol. The Old Testament okay. saints, whether they were righteous or unrighteous, right? They all go to Sheol. And so all of the language in the Old Testament that refers to Sheol or the grave, going down into the grave, all of that stuff, into the abyss, into the, the depth of the sea, all of this is is um, metaphorical language for this this place of the departed, uh, the departed human soul. Within Sheol... Sheol is compartmentalized into different layers. So there's what he calls upper Sheol or in the parable of Lazarus and, uh, and the rich man, he, or then the poor man, um, no Lazarus and the rich man, he right. calls that Abraham's bosom, right? That, that Sheol. So this is the place where the departed saints of the old Testament go to rest. And then below that is the place where the departed wicked go to be in torment. This is where um, where the where Lazarus or where the rich man was, the publican. And then below that is the abyss or the deepest part of Sheol. This is where Satan and and his demons kind of hang out. This is where they're ultimately going to be punished, right? And so then his thesis is that what Christ descends, right? Cruz Moors in Ferry is the the cross. Uh, death and then inferi is like the grave or sheol. It's like the Latin word that basically means like hell. Like you hear that inferi, like in on fire. Like that's that's kind of what he's getting out that title. And it's a it's a kind of a classic Latin phrase that gets used by a lot of authors in in the sort of patristic and medieval age. So Christ descends all the way down to the abyss, and then as he ascends, he takes all of the righteous saints with him to heaven. And so his thesis is basically that prior to Christ's resurrection, and this is not a new thesis, this isn't really the classic harrowing of hell thesis, but it's very similar. Right. It's close. Right. It's very close. Um, Christ descends, 
he take he actually goes into the underworld into the the abode of the dead which is not just the grave which is what the the dominant reformed understanding of that phrase in in Ephesians first Peter all of those things that's what happens this book is really just a lot of assertions um, and and some of that might be I want to I want to be as charitable as I can some of that might be that he's not he's writing for an audience where he's trying not to use a, com- a lot of complex argumentation he's trying to write for a very popular very lay level audience but it's a lot of uh, argument by assertion. It's a lot of circular reasoning. So in one part, he um, in one place, he talks about uh, how Abraham's bosom is is the top layer of Sheol. He never really established that Sheol has these layers, but then he just talks about it like it is. But then like a couple pages later, he uses the fact that Abraham's bosom and the place where um, where the rich man is, which is, is called Sheol, right? So there's already in that text, there's a distinction between Abraham's bosom and Sheol. He uses that then, uh, the point he just made, to prove that there's this layered, this layered cosmology of, of Sheol, which he assumed. So he, he does this circular argumentation and, and here's, here's where it becomes a problem. I think for a lot of people is it drives some really faulty conclusions. And I don't, I, I want my 1689 federalist brothers and sisters to hear me on this. I think these conclusions are consistent with 1689 federalism. And I think that there is a tendency with 1689 federalism to have to account for why it is and how it can be that the saints of the old Testament have the same status as the saints of the new Testament when the new covenant has not been inaugurated yet. Right. Well, what Sam Renahan does, and I don't, I don't know what the chicken or the egg is, right? I don't know which one came first, but somewhere along the line, these conclusions are reinforcing each other. The conclusion is that since the new covenant had not been inaugurated, the old Testament saints could not have what it is that Christ gives the new Testament saints. And so it leads him to say things like this. This is on page 67 of the uh, Kindle edition. He says, though the saints of old were comforted in paradise, Abraham's bosom, so long as they remained in Sheol, exiled from the light of God's glory, Satan was victorious over them. So like, just let that sink in for a second. His conclusion is that the Old Testament saints were under the dominion of Satan in Sheol, even though they were like sort of in almost like this pocket dimension where they're protected from it. They're still under his dominion. And then uh, again, he says, and Kindle is not great for flipping between quotes right here, but um, and then again on page 74, he says, well, the old covenant and its system remained. It symbolized the incompleteness of Christ's mission. He had not yet opened the way to the heavenly inheritance to which the saints of old and new era were entitled through the blood of his covenant. And then he cites Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. So there, there's two different levels, right, on which a book can be bad, right? There, there's the argumentation technical level. Is it well-written? Is it well put together? Is the argumentation good? Is it properly supported? All that stuff. It fails on that. And then there's the conclusions, right? And it fails on that. So this isn't a new argument. I remember the very first uh, theological academic conference I ever went to had a guy presenting this thesis that, that Christ descended into Sheol to sort of rescue the Old Testament saints out of there and and then to bring them back to heaven with him. And uh, to be fair, there's some, I mean, I I actually think there are stronger ways to argue this from scripture than Sam Renahan does. Um, that, that weird passage in Matthew where the, the old Testament or the, the graves open up and all all these dead people are walking around the city. Like that's a better way to go or a better place to go over some of this. And he doesn't go there. So it's, it's a little bit of a strange argument that he makes. And it's a little bit of a, uh, 
truncated argument, I think. Um, all, full disclosure, he goes into the next section, which is a uh, historical theology, where I'm sure he's going to go and he's going to sort of pull out people within the Reformed tradition that that support his view or support something like this. Um, I haven't read that part yet. It the, the book is kind of these two self-contained sections. There's the biblical theology argument of here's the scriptural evidence, here's the, the theological evidence, and then there's the historical section. And they are basically self, self-contained. They actually like have their own conclusions in each. It's actually like two small treatises put together. Um, but it, it's, it's just not all that good. I, I went into it really kind of hoping for something not novel, but innovative in the way it was presenting the argument, not because I wanted to be convinced, but just because I, I thought that would be interesting. I thought it would contribute something. And in my opinion, it just, it just doesn't really. Um, and I, I, I don't think that was accidental. I think he really is trying to sort of just put a really surface level lay level entry into here to kind of get people talking about it. But I just think that the argument doesn't, at least in the form he presents it, the argument doesn't hold water and the conclusions he, he seems to have to come to are really, really problematic. There's one part where he actually, you know, if you go back to our atonement series, when we, we talked about the ransom theory, we talked a little bit about how there's this element in some of the patristic fathers where Satan actually is like tricked into, uh, into killing Christ under the impression that somehow that's he's going to win and God knows he's not, but he kind of withholds that information because Satan's not entitled to it. Sam actually, I don't know why I'm just calling him Sam, like we're on a first name basis. Renahan actually, <laughs> he actually holds that, that theology. Like in part of the book, he justifies this by saying like, um, he uses the scapegoat ceremony and like basically like the fact that one of the goats goes out to this this Hebrew word azazel that we don't really know exactly what it is. Some people, the the very minority report thinks it represents some demon named azazel that the, he takes that position. So like he's he's saying like the goat had to go to the goat to the demon who had some sort of like lawful claim on on Israel. Uh, because of their sin. And so the goat appeases Azazel and the goat that stays and is brought into the temple appeases the father, appeases God. He says that like the descent actually proves uh, like the fact that Satan expected killing Christ to somehow actually accomplish something and like was going to be victorious for him, that that actually proves that Christ Ascend, descended to hell because if Satan knew that Christ was going to go straight to heaven and be in the Father's presence, then like, what's the point of killing him? What does that gain him? Uh, which is weird because he uses a passage out of Corinthians where I actually, when as I read it, I think it, it's talking about the rulers of this age. I actually think it's talking about like political rulers in the age. I don't think it's talking about Satan. So it's just weird conclusions. It's weird. Um, it's like weird medieval theology about the descent. So uh, yeah, when I say don't, don't bother reading it, I don't mean like don't read it and don't be critical, but like, it's not, there are better treatments of this doctrine and better arguments out there. This one's easy to get through. It's fat. It's a fast read. Um, you know, the chapters are short, so it's not a bad approach in terms of just getting your head into it. But I just think it's a poorly argued book. I'm not sure why everybody's going crazy about it, to be honest with you. It's just not that well written. So I, I'm, I'm trying not to be too harsh. I mean, it's funny that that's my not too harsh version of a review, but it's just not good. Just it, it, don't dabble with it. It's it's not necessary. Even from a 1689 perspective, I don't think it's necessary to argue 
that there's some radical change in in the state of those who are dead, uh, at, you know, that happens right. at the resurrection, resurrection or the inauguration or ratification of the new covenant. Although I think that's a consistent, I think it's consistent with it to to see this firm difference at the you know ratification of the new covenant at at Christ's death and resurrection. I think it's consistent, but it I don't think it's necess- a necessary conclusion of sixty nine federalism. So just just don't like it's not it's not good. It's really not that good. You know who doesn't hold that view? Uh, like most reformed people? Like Dr. Michael Horton. That's Dr. True. Horton, come back to us. Yes. We can please. record your voice now. We have different equipment. <laughs> we have the technology. We can rebuild him. We've Speaking the- of the technology, we have the technology for this whole new series we on do. Providence, which I'm pretty stoked about. And the great opportunity that we have, as you and I have been discussing it, is we can kind of settle in and snuggle up with some of the things that we'd like to talk about when it comes to providence and election and not have to like come jam it into like a tinier part of some yeah. other fuller series. So we're going to like go back kind of to the beginning. Actually, that ended, that's going to be a pun that I didn't really intend, <laughs> but we're, we're going to go back to the beginning because as you and I kind of just conversed about this a little bit. I think we both came to the agreement that sometimes when we speak about providence, especially in the reformed tradition, we actually tend to jump in like midstream, but we don't often realize that we're jumping in midstream. And so much of what's been written about this has started at a place that surprisingly, we don't start the conversation. So we're going to try to go there and we're going to start in this episode. And the best way to do that though first is even though we're going to start at the beginning, which is a good place to start. We're going to do so with a, an eye toward what the goal is. And so I want to just throw out, which might be an introduction for some and just rehearsing for others, this definition of what we mean when we say providence. And just let's just focus on that word just for a quick second so it kind of sets the context and the tone. It provides this nice layer for us on which to stand. So it's a word that has a prefix and a root. In fact, the root comes from Latin. It's videre, which we, from which we get the English word video. So that old phrase from Caesar, right? Vini, vidi, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. So this Latin word, provideo, from which we get the word providence, means to see beforehand. It's a prior seeing, a foresight. However, theologians, as many people will know, make a necessary distinction between the foreknowledge of God and the providence of God. So even though the word providence means the same thing etymologically as the word foreknowledge, the concept covers significantly more ground than the idea of foreknowledge. In fact, I would say the closest thing to this Latin word in our language is the word provision. And so Christians have had an acute sense that this is our father's world that the affairs of men and nations and the final analysis are in his hands. And where we're setting our eyes on this series at the end, kind of the crown jewel of understanding God's providence is what the apostle Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight, a sure knowledge he gives of divine providence by saying, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And immediately after that, Paul moves right into this lovely predestination sequence. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And of course, the conclusion then is, he says, so what then shall we say to all these things? In other words, what should be our response to the sovereignty of God and to the fact that he is working out a divine purpose in this world, and in our lives. And that really 
is the question of this whole series. So I want to set that up as that is where we want to go. But, and I think this is stolen from, what's that musical? The Hills Are Alive with the Sounds of Music. The Sound of Music. Oh, The Sound of Music. Yeah, yeah isn't there a song? The Hills Are Alive with Thank The you. Sound of Music. Thank you. See, it seems so obvious. It was right on, the, on the, my nose. Uh, I believe there's like a song in there, like the beginning is a very good place to start. I don't know. I'm not a big musical guy, but I think there's a lyric <laughs> in there like that. So let's start at the beginning. So how do we appropriately start talking about this topic so that we don't like jump in in the middle inadvertently? Yeah. So I, I want to say this. I'm going to sneak another little denial into the show here. I want to say this you. Um, with a caveat that I have not read the book, but I have read the table of contents. And although you should not judge a book on the cover, you probably can make some judgments uh, of a book on the table of contents. This episode is coming out in the context of John Piper's like magnum opus, which is oh, called yeah. Providence, right? I've not right. read the book. Right. I've not read a single page of the book except for the table of com contents. And this demonstrates exactly what Jesse's talking about. That a lot of times when we talk about Providence, we don't necessarily... Um, start where we need to start. So I, I don't know. Um, I don't know for sure. Maybe the the chapter headings or titles are not super accurate. But there's no there's no doctrine of God presented in John Piper's Providence, right? In the book of, of Provi the book called Providence by John Piper. I don't see one uh, specifically. There's a section about um, you know providence before creation and providence and the act of creation, which we're going to get into. But there's no discussion specifically about the nature of God. And this is why it's important, is that providence, as we understand it as Reformed Christians, is rooted in the doctrine of God. It's rooted in right. the very nature of who God is, which it determines how it is that he creates and how it is that he relates to that creation. And so when you look at a Reformed systematic theology, or when you write a Reformed systematic theology, you have to make a decision. Do I, do I put the doctrine of of providence in the section on the doctrine of God, or do I do I kind of lump it in with the doctrine of election? Right, election is an aspect of providence. Right. So sometimes providence gets kind of lumped in with uh, the doctrine of salvation, or sometimes it gets lumped in with the doctrine of creation. In reality, most reformed systematic theology treatments actually include providence as part of the doctrine of God. And the reason for that is, as I said, it has to do with the, the fact that God is the first cause and that he is never acted upon by an, a, a created effect. That is, is what we're talking about. We're talking about providence. So when, when I, um, let's say my wife says, I need you to go get something, right? We're talking about providence, providere, right? It has to do with foreknowledge. The idea is that God, God sees and, and knows what's, what's necessary. He sees it ahead of time. And so he's able to arrange things to bring it about the way it needs to be. Even that is a little bit wrong. Let's say that I know that every night at 8.30, my wife is going to ask me to go downstairs and get something for her, whatever it is. Let's say it's a drink, glass of water. When I do that, I'm, I'm affected by that. I, I have to expend energy. I have to go get up, stop doing what I'm doing. I have to go downstairs. It expends energy. It expends my potency, right? If, if I'm, I'm not omnipotent, I have a limited amount of potency. Some of that potency is used up to go get that, that glass of water. When we're talking about God and providence, we have to remember, and, and you can go back to um, you can go back to our discussion of providence that we had before. You know, we, we did a whole episode about secondary causation and God's interactions with the world. We did, we've talked about this stuff in various episodes. God as the first 
the first cause. I talked right. about this actually last week a little bit on the episode with um, with Adonis Vidu. God is the first cause, is the beginning of a causal chain, but he's not a cause in the causal chain because in in a secondary and a chain of secondary causation, everything that causes an effect is also affected by that effect. So you know it's Newton's second law, or is it the first law, second law? Every every uh, action has an equal and opposite reaction. If I uh, if I get in a fight and I punch a person, then there's the amount of force that I'm applying to that person's body is also being applied to my fist. Right. I don't know. I don't know if you I mean you did Taekwondo, right? So you you've right. you've punched things before. If you don't punch right, <laughs> you're gonna hurt yourself. Like of that's course. what's funny is you see these movies where like people are like punching people and punching people and then they like they just go back to normal. Like that's not how it happens. If you actually punch someone in the face hard, it hurts your hand. It doesn't feel right. good. Right. Well, God when God acts, when he does something, when he causes an, an effect in creation, there is no equal opposite effect that is applied to him. And so if we don't get that right, if we don't start with that understanding, and this is what we're talking about when we say God's aseity, right? There's nothing that affects God. There's nothing that God is dependent on for any element of his being, right? So when he when he creates, he doesn't enter a new status as creator, right? Right. I know that's, a, that's like really complicated theology to get your head around, and that's a totally different episode for us to do some point in the future. But God is eternally the creator, even though he has not yet as of yet created. And even that's like temporal time bound language, but even though he is not, even though he had not created, he still was the eternal creator because his, his existence, his identity, his, his definition takes into account everything that he is and everything that he does and everything he decrees. So we have to start with this understanding of theology proper. And this is a radically different understanding than our, our Molinist or provisionist or Arminian and some Lutheran uh, brothers and sisters, right? Because they start with a God in a Molinist perspective, God is limited. He's constrained in some sense by the free choices of creatures, right? He is determined in his mind that, you know, there's, there's all these range of logically possible worlds, right? God is, God is bound only by his own nature. So there's a, a range of logically possible worlds within those range of logically possible worlds. Some of those worlds have free will, Right. And that's what that's what Molinists talk about when they talk about feasible worlds are these worlds that have free will because God wants to create a world with free will. So there's a subset of all the possible worlds that have genuine human freedom in them. And then within those, he doesn't control what the what the free creatures do in those worlds. He picks one of those. So he couldn't create a free world that had X if none of the free creatures chose X. Right. So there are things that are outside of God's ability to create because of the choices of free creatures. So he's no longer, he now is affected. This is why, in part, why William Lane Craig has to say that once God creates, he becomes time locked. He becomes temporal because he, he wasn't temporal. And then he creates this temporal universe. And now he interacts with that universe. He knows the difference between tomorrow and yesterday. That's kind of the the language that Craig uses. Right. Um, Or the Arminian who says, well, God looks down the, the corridors of time and he sees, and they'll use this, the fact that providence is related to the root for foreknowledge. He sees what free creatures would do. And then he acts accordingly. Well, that knowledge, is coming to him from outside of himself. So his exactly. knowledge, which is is not distinct or is not separate from his being, 
due to divine simplicity, his knowledge and therefore partially his being an identity is now determined by something outside of him. Yes. It's an apprehended knowledge. It comes to him, right? So we, if we get this wrong, if we get this fundamentally wrong, we, we actually end up with a different understanding of who it is that God is and what it is that God is. And that's why I think when you're talking about providence, you really have to start here because roughly speaking, reformed Christians believe that God knows the future not because he's apprehended it, but because he determines it, because it, it, it flows exactly. from his decree and he's determined right. it. So he knows, he knows if I'm going to write a word, I don't have to figure out what that word is. The word, the word becomes what it is. The word is put on the paper because I choose for that word to be on the paper, right? That's how creation is for God analogically, is creation unfolds the way it does because God has chosen to do it that way, and he knows himself. So he knows what he's going to do. He knows what his, his intentions and what his decree for creation is. And so that determines that. And that is where his knowledge comes from, from within his own self. So we right. can say God's knowledge of creation is not a knowledge of something external to himself, even though creation is external to God, right? We're not panthe or panentheists. Not all things are God. Not all things are in God. But God's knowledge of creation comes from his determination that comes from within himself of what creation will be. Right. In other words, that was a lot right there. Sorry. In other words, Sorry, like, I meant to slow down a little bit, but it just no. That going. was that was a good, fantastic uh, intro, and also like the entire course right there. That was well. This has been a great series on Providence. <laughs> uh, but you're making a really strong point right at the beginning, and I'm glad you're coming with that kind of magnitude and force because I think what we're trying to say is that in Reformed theology, we're trying to understand that providence is a closed system that exists in God Himself. And this is the ironic thing is this is a bit like, you know, we've talked about because we have different perspectives on baptism, for instance, if let's say you grew up in kind of like a, a just traditional Baptist kind of environment and you have a brother or sister that believes in pedo baptism and you want to have a conversation with them and you just start the conversation off saying something like this. Well, the Bible doesn't say ever that you should <laughs> baptize your children. That is like the wrong argument to make because you're about to get owned by somebody who understands something about that argument from the perspective of covenant and relationship and exter externality of like demonstration in the same way, if you say to like an Arminian, Hey, listen, uh, I don't understand how you can, the word predestined is in the scripture. So how do you deal with that? Like, let's go to Ephesians one right now. And you tell me how you can even reconcile what Paul says about predestined, what they're going to say to you. If, if they're smart, if they're following through consistently with that theological stream, is they're going to say something like, well, all this means is that God looked down the quarters of time and he predestined those whom he saw would accept. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Yep. On the face, you could take those scriptures and say, you're, you're going to be challenged and to say, come back at them and say, and say like, oh, uh, I don't know what to do with that. Because like, if you compartmentalize that piece of scripture, you could certainly take their argument and they, they could make a case However, where it breaks down is when you start to understand what does that case, again, you're jumping into a, a conversation about providence in the midst of the stream at this point or sign point of election. Right. And if you back up, if you go further upstream, what you'll find is you're saying something about the character of God when you make the statement that his way of electing is looking through the quarters of time. And the question is, does what you're saying then derivatively about God's character comport with the way the scriptures describe him? Right. And that Arminian's perspective does not. Correct. That's not what the full counsel of God says about who he is. And so I think you're right. We need to talk about how God executes his plans in the works of creation and in providence. 
And I'm going to steal your thunder because I'm sure you're going to bring this up, but I feel like now is as good time as, as any. We were going to go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I want to read just question seven, which is like, what, like a five-word question, but the yeah. answer is like so amazingly profound. And actually, I think if people want to track with us, spend some time really thinking about this, look at question seven through 11 in particular, or seven eleven. So the question seven is, what are the decrees of God? That seems like an innocent enough question. Notice yeah. where the divines list start us off. They say the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So in other words, they're setting us up already for these almost like two works of God. I want to kind of try to summarize and bring in kind of what you said before. So we have God's as his internal or ad intra within himself, apart from all else operation before time in which he determined the, from eternity, what he would do in time. And then we have his work occurring in time as his external operation that's ad extra, like you said, outside of himself and related to all else in the creation of all things in the past, in the government and preservation of all things in the present. Right. I think we often get stuck on the second one. Yeah. And we don't think about what it means that God has an internal ad intra degree. It's within himself and apart from all else. That's the kind of providence we're talking about. That's the kind of providence actually the scriptures uphold. We don't even get to the word promise. A providence, honestly, until like we have the interaction with Abraham. Right. So before all of that, God is acting in a way that is unique to himself, that is self-contained. It's like closed circuit TV for God. He knows what he's doing. And because his character is this way, the outworkings then flow out of that providential, so to speak, character. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's that's the right place to start, right? So and and this this is why I think learning catechisms and confessions and and really like allowing these to be like the framework that your theology grows on is important, right? Because what comes right before question seven is question four, five, and six, which is theology proper, right? So what <laughs> right. is God? God is a spirit, right. infinite, eternal, unchangeable, right. and is being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? So we start with who God is and what his nature is. And the the confession follows the same outline, right? Chapter, chapter uh, two is uh, on God and the Holy Trinity. Did I get that right? I think so. Yes, chapter two is God and the Trinity, chapter three is God's eternal decree, and then chapter four and five are creation and providence, respectively. And so where we're going to end up going, uh, and I think probably we, it's good that we don't have like a set number of episodes for this, because I think we, we probably already spent our first episode, we're not going to be able to do creation. But what we have to understand is that creation as, um, as, a, as an act is is sort of like the flip side of the coin of providence of providence of providence and creation <laughs> right so god right. god creates and we'll we'll unpack this a little more next week but god creates and then he sustains right he creates all the all things and then all things are sustained according to the word of his power and and right. what we often do i think is because we sort of um let me just, I don't think we have any Armenian listeners, but somebody share this with your Armenian <laughs> friend and just make sure they just lose their mind, right? What Armenians especially do, and I think, you know, Molinists, open theists, really that's all like birds of a feather kind of stuff. And then I think some Lutheran tradition, some parts of the Lutheran tradition do is they divide creation from providence. And in so doing, right. they unwittingly become deists, right? God creates, and then, yeah, maybe like he does something to keep the rest of it going. But like this idea that like he's intimately involved with every happening in the universe and he's controlling all of it by the, like, 
all yeah that no that's not god 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 doesn't have this meticulous interaction with the world he lets some things unfold without his involvement in it well that's just a variation that's just degrees of difference from pro, from deism which is well god creates yeah god is the lord of creation but this providence thing where he's intimately involved like no no he just lets it he just lets it go he just lets it unfold so we if we get the nature of god wrong right? It flips over and it gets the nature of creation wrong. And then that flips over again and gets the nature of providence wrong. So I know it may feel a little strange. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe our listeners are just so theologically attuned now, and maybe they've been studying the confessions like we've been asking them to for 240 episodes. Maybe this just feels natural now because they've memorized the first 10 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but maybe it doesn't. So, so we have to start with God, Right, it's a very good place to start. I don't know if that's from the Sound of Music. I don't. It my is. head tells me it's from Mary Spot Poppins, on. but Spot on. Um, but we start from God, and then <laughs> we Poppins. talk about God's act in creation, and then we talk about God's continued act in providence. So, so we're going to use the the Westminster Shorter Catechism to kind of um, to sort of build a framework or a rubric for our, our little discussion here. And you know what? We may continue on through some more catechism questions because once we get past chapter five of the confession or we get, you know, into like, uh, like question like 10 ish, 10 or 11 ish in the, the catechism, we start to look at like what, well, what's happened in creation? What's, what's right. the story of redemption right. kind of takes over, but all of that unfolds within the providence of God. And that's important for us to remember because it'll it'll frame what we have to say, right? You get um, the definition of providence, which is in question 11. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, right? We're not just talking about living creatures when we say that. We're talking about anything that is created. God governs all right. of his creatures and all of their actions, Right. So so it's important for us to kind of get that and land that. And, you know, it's funny. I've been reading this memory book that you recommended to me. And like in real time, I'm trying to figure out because I, I, I mentioned before, like I really struggle trying to remember which questions are which. And in real time, I just came up with my memory device for question seven. You want to hear it? Yes, I do. Question seven, what are the decrees of God? Well, in seven days, God executes all of his all of nice. decrees. Because he executes in days one through six, he creates, and in day seven, he rests. But that resting is actually the work of providence as he sustains creation into the eternal Sabbath and on into forward-facing eternity. There we go. So I'm not going to come up with any crazy mental images of like giant airplanes flying out of trees with fruit (laughs) on them or anything weird like that. But uh, yeah, it works. So I'm excited for this series because I think this is, I feel like this is kind of the year of like back to basics in a lot of ways for us. Maybe it's been two years of back to basics now, but a lot of ways, like we're taking these opportunities to do these sort of longer series and deep dive into particular elements of theology, right? So, but, but we're learning, I think we're learning, we're seeing, or we're reinforcing, because it's not like we didn't know this. We're reinforcing the fact that like, you can't just take one discrete part of theology. You have to talk about the other elements that are integrated, right? We were talking about covenant theology. You have to talk about the nature of God. You have to talk about the nature of the incarnation, the nature of sin, the nature of salvation, all of that's related in the, in the uh, covenants. Well, now we're talking about things in the atonement and things in, um, in creation protology. We're talking about, we'll probably talk about God's superintending scripture and how it came to be. Like all of those things are related to each other. And I'm really loving this ability to do these deep dives. I think this is is uh, is a really good topic for us to kind of kind of really dig into. 
And since this is just the beginning, I want to make a proposal, uh, a use of language for us. And I want to see if we can get this to catch on among all our brothers and sisters who are listeners. And that is, you know, still just as a colloquialism, Christians in particular will say to one another, you know, you have something coming up or you're going to undertake, let's say you're going and you're going to run a foot race or you're going to take a big test or you're going to a job interview or you're going to a doctor's appointment. You might say in good conscience to somebody else who's a Christian, good luck, which of course just means I hope things turn out the way that you would like them to. And there's nothing wrong with expressing that kind of hopefulness to somebody. I want to make the proposal that we just swap luck because here's the irony. We are, so here's, I'm going to get super philosophical just really quickly at the tail end of this episode. We are deterministic thinkers in a probabilistic world. And if evolution was actually true, we'd be probabilistic thinkers in a probabilistic world. But the fact that we're deterministic in the sense that we tend to lock in our minds. The way we think about events is not that there are this grand kind of scope or scale of probability, some distribution. I need to calculate everything that's ahead of me and take some sensible guess as to what's going to happen. We have this idea. We think in one way that things are determined. And I think that is in some ways God planting eternity in our hearts and in our minds. And so to that effect, I want to propose that we start saying good providence to a brother or sister, because it's a way I think of expressing one, that providence that is divinely orchestrated, which all providence is, is good. Because why? It's the same thing you just said. God does what God is. Yep. So good providence is a reflection that God's providence is good. And I think secondarily, it's just like a fun way to say like, you know, I'm trusting in the Lord for you. I want it to go well for you. I also want God and his superintending will to care for you and for you to know that his superintending will is yeah. caring for you. So can we, can I put that proposal uh, forward. I don't know if we do. We need a second. I'll second just, the motion. Okay. Yeah. All in favor. Motion passes. There's only motion two passes. of us, so <laughs> so I think good it providence. Good, good providence. providence. Yeah, it's funny. I have this little thing that I do that um, Ashley just rolls her eyes at every time. Is every time I see or hear someone say something that implies that they they believe there's some sort of some sort of higher power and that that higher power is things are unfolding according to that higher power's plan. I will say everyone's a Calvinist if you dig deep enough. Right. And just an example of this, I, I have a, a, a person that I work with. Uh, I'm not going to say their name. They're, they're in a higher level of authority than I am in the hospital. And uh, they're very, very, very quick when something doesn't go the way that uh, any person, whether it's me or them or whatever, doesn't want. They're very quick to say, and this person is like a, a very avowed outward atheist, right? Uh, very naturalistic. There's no divinity. There's nothing. It's just you're, you die and then you're dust and that's it. Uh, they're very quick to say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I want to be like, what is that reason and whose what reason, reason is, is that? Yeah, what's the reason and whose reason is it? Like, yes. I could see a naturalist saying, like, well, everything happens according to in you know immutable laws of physics, and and it's just right. a big chain reaction. Okay, yeah, that's not Calvinism, but saying everything happens for a reason, or or like if um, someone doesn't get a promotion that they thought they were you know they wanted. Um, they'll say something like, well, you know, you're where you're supposed to be then. Obviously, like there's right. a better opportunity. And the, when, when the opportunity is right, it'll it'll work out. Like you'll get, you, this just meant you weren't supposed to go there. And I'm like, who's the one determining the supposed to? Exactly. This? And this is just, right, adventures in Romans 1, pro, you know, uh, presuppositional apologetics. Everybody knows that this is a big designed thing. Everything is designed. Everything is unfolding towards an end, towards a purpose, towards a telos, Right. They just don't want to acknowledge it. So that's my little game that I 
that I play is every time somebody says something that seems to reflect the fact that they actually know there's a God and that that God is in control and he has a plan. I just kind of, kind of slyly look at my wife and go, yeah, everyone's a Calvinist. If you dig deep enough. Yeah. That that's stellar because I think this is kind of why we wanted to talk about this to wrap it up is that Providence is an old, it sounds like an old fashioned word. I mean, how often are you using the word Providence and I kind of just your normal parlance, probably not that much. The bottom line though, is if you listen to the ways people speak, they're actually inferring or sneaking in some sense of Providence in all parts of their life. And so this isn't just a conversation for Christians. It is uniquely a conversation for Christians, but it isn't just for us. In other words, as we're trying to find entry points into conversations with others, that are not believers in order to understand or explain to them how the world works. We have the corner on that market because we have the scriptures in which God tells us the way reality actually exists. And part of that is wrapped up in providence, which is a reflection of his character. So it's like, this is like talk about wanting to be able to help course correct some people who have the right volition to seek after a deterministic reality, but actually do not have the spiritual or philosophical underpinnings to actually do it. Right. This is the way to help close the loop. And I think I found it to be a wonderful entry point. So we should just try to understand it. But of course, before we close out this episode, Tony, there's two pieces of business that we have to take care of. Yes. The first one is... We want to say again, thank you to all of those who have reached out and joined us in supporting the Brotherhood by giving through Patreon. And if you'd like to give something to the podcast after, of course, satisfying the requirements and giving to your church, if you sought the mind of the Lord and you want to support us financially, the best way to do that is just go to the Reformed Brotherhood or just reformedbrotherhood.com. I should know their website by now. Reformedbrotherhood.com. <laughs> Click on the Join the Brotherhood in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see my most favorite tagline on any website, especially ours, where it says, the Reformation just got a whole lot better. Join the Brotherhood. We're the thing you've been waiting for, apparently. But you'll see one of the options. There's all seven things that you can do to, to support us. One of those is to become a Patreon donor. And specifically, I want to shout out, call out to... Brother Scuba Steve, who not only has been a regular giver, but actually increased his giving. And wow. I am so touched by that. We're just so thankful for all everybody who listens and comments and is a part of this. We're thankful for everybody. We're also thankful for those who said, you know what, we want to stand with you guys and we want to support it financially. So if, if you want to do that, go to reformbrotherhood.com and you can follow the links through and find how we're making the Reformation. Yeah, I feel like better. if this was uh, distilling theology, there'd be some sweet sound effect that'd be like a crowd cheering, and it'd be like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> but I just do that with my mouth because I'm too lazy to do sound effects. Listen, the air horn thing, I never get tired of. I don't know why. Have you ever so heard great. somebody though who can like really do a really good air yeah. horn with their mouth, oh, yeah. and it's like the most exceptional thing? I, I, I just want to hear it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not going to comment on that because you're absolutely right. There's no, That's an unimpeachable statement. But if you are a patron on Patreon or if you're thinking about becoming a patron, uh, we have some something special planned for all of yes. those people who are supporting us. That's so true. we're not going to tell you what it is yet. Uh, but I would surmise that, you know, you're reasonable people. Use your brains. You, when I ask you to go in and update, update your address on your Patreon profile and make sure it's correct, 
you can probably surmise that that means that we've got a special gift that we're planning. So uh, we haven't uh, we haven't locked in a date for when we're going to send out this undisclosed special gift. Uh, but if you go in, if you are a patron or if you'd like to become a patron, please make sure your address is up to date so that we can uh, send out whatever it is that I'm cooking up for our patrons. We just so appreciate the people who take uh, take time out of their day to listen to the show and then even more so the people who take uh, money out of their pockets to support the show so that other people can listen to the show because it really is um, you know I, I try to do a good job of finding good deals on equipment and and finding good hosting deals and, and you know uh, saving costs when I can but there are some costs that you just I'm never going to convince Libsyn to give us a discount on our hosting fees I'm never going to convince right. Bluehost to give us a discount on our website fees so there are some things that you we just have to spend what we have to spend and it's it's really nice to know that there's a community of people behind us that are going to make sure that those funds are there for when we need them for those kinds of overhead costs. So go go to your Patreon profile. And um, if you're not a donor, go ahead and, and become a donor. Uh, we're going to send out these gifts sometime over the summer, and they're going to be awesome. And you're going to wish you had one. And it's going to be the only <laughs> way that you could get one. So make sure you go in, update your, uh, update your profile, make sure the correct address is in there so I can get you your wicked awesome gift. I love it. And we got one more shout out, which is we want to, of course, shout out to Logos, who has been sponsoring many yes. of our podcasts recently in this series in particular. And again, tell you that if you haven't looked at Logos recently, no matter where you are in life, no matter what kind of ministry you have, formal or otherwise, whether you're a lay leader or a pastor, there's so many beautiful, wonderful packages and so much of what they have available to you is so wonderfully intuitive. One thing I want to point out, because we've been trying to point out like different little wonderful things so that people get a, a true perspective of what the software is like. So I, you started using Logos maybe like a year or two ago. Yeah. And the thing that turned me off from it for a long time was the thing that turned me off to podcasting, which was it just seems too complicated because it yeah. can be overwhelming. Here's what's really great. I don't know if you've used these because I think you've been in Logos longer than I have, but they have wonderful tutorial videos, like yeah. even just the opening videos and they set them up for you. So they're like, here is what you should watch. Like it's, and this is like a super excited dude to explain like Logos yeah, to you. I forgot his name. Yeah, yeah. It's Morris I, it, Proctor. I don't know. I don't know who that is, but he loves Logos. He loves it, and he, there's even like the first video is basically like he's basically like you are probably super excited right now, and you just want to do stuff. So he's like, <laughs> I'm going to give you the minimum number of things where you can go to just do some stuff and have some fun right now. I that I so resonated with that, and I thought these guys were thinking about me when they put this together because it gives you this wonderful way to become like a little bit of an expert to learn some of the techniques. And I promise you, you'll actually won't feel overwhelmed. That feeling will just melt away as you watch this guy get so stoked to explain how to use like the search bar <laughs> and all the other features and like where to put stuff and how to organize things yeah. and how to find books. And so don't get overwhelmed. If you've thought this just seems too crazy. I can't learn more software. I've learned software for work and why would I want to do that in my, in my free time? Trust me, they've taken care of that for you and you'll be really blessed if you go and check it out. So how can people actually get a little bit of a discount by following a link? Yeah, you can go to logos.com. Logos.com slash reform brotherhood, and you'll get a 10% discount on um, on the package that you purchase. 
um, which they have packages of, of all different levels for all different peoples. Um, they have some that are way high end that have way more books than you're ever going to use as a layperson. Uh, but they also have one that's a very basic package that is affordable and reasonable and gives you a good starting kit of resources that you can add to later on. And if you use that link, you can get a 10% discount and you'll actually get five free books as well. And Ooh, my, yeah. my own little, uh, my own little plug right now, my favorite thing about Lagos is that you cannot buy Crooks Moors in fairy on it. So <laughs> don't at me. I'm just kidding. I, I don't want to bang on the book too much, but uh, they, they are very selective in what books they have and they have a lot of different books. So you can get a lot of different, really good books. Um, they have, I'm, I'm not sure why, but there's recently they've been sending out some $20 coupons to people who use the software to get some free stuff. I picked up simply Trinity by Matthew Barrett, which is a book nice. I've been wanting to get for a long time. And now okay. I have it in my Logos library indexed and, and everywhere. And that, that's part of what makes it so simple is that all Although it's a very complex software and there's lots of things you can do, you also can just pick up a book and start reading it. So it's it's this awesome blend of like a really, really quality e-reader that you can take notes in and then also this really, really comprehensive database of information that you can you can get lost in for hours. So check it out, logos.com slash reform brotherhood. And you know, Jesse, I'm excited about this this series. Uh, and, and I'm excited that we have no idea how many episodes it's going to be. And you know what, what Origin said about the author of Hebrews, God only knows. That That's kind of yes. like where this series is going is we, God only knows how many episodes it's going to be, but he knows. And he knows that next time we're going to come back and talk about it more. And until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.